Now, you want to turn your Bibles this evening to the book of James. I don't know uh, if you guys have been catching all of the, the lessons out of the book of James. I'll tell you, this is Sunday night. This is the Sunday night crowd. This is going to, we're going to get into a little uh, what they call meat tonight. We're going to get into a little uh, meat of the word. Uh, what that means is it's not going to be as much fluff. It's not as much sugar and spice and everything nice. Uh, we're going to uh, preach the word of God this evening and looking at this passage of scripture in James chapter number four. We've been studying this with the idea of practical lessons from the book of James, just looking at each chapter, trying to kind of take the chapter as a whole and get a, a picture of it, a, a vision of what could be there. We saw in chapter number one that we had the lesson on learning how to live and uh, living for God. And then we looked in chapter two and the lesson on learning, learning how to love, learning how to love one another with the love of Christ and in, in the love of God and Chapter number three, we saw learning how to lead, how to be the right kind of leader. And tonight, as we get into chapter number four, we want to see learning how to let go, learning how to let go. And there's some things that are very clearly taught in the passage here that are dealing with or talking about uh, letting go. And, you know, the second kind of division or way of looking at this with regards to this passage of Scripture, it's practical. James is very practical, and he says, you know, faith without works is dead. And uh, there's a, an evidence of the saving faith that's in you. There should be an evidence. It should be uh, there. People should be able to see it. And so if we look at it from that respect, we see in chapter 1 that saving faith is evident by our willingness to honor and please God. Uh, chapter 2, saving faith is evident by the works that we do. And we know we're not saved by works, but it's evident. Our salvation is evident by the works that we do. In chapter number 3, we see saving faith is evident by both words, the words that we use, how we communicate, and how we talk. We've got to control this tongue, amen? amen. And then also by uh, the wisdom that we have, the wisdom of God. Uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Uh, we see that. And then chapter 4 here, we see the saving faith is evident by its avoidance of worldliness. Of worldliness. So there's some divisions and some ways of looking at this, but we want to get right into it tonight. We've got three things. I've divided the chapter up into three categories, and we're going to try and touch base on each one of these. And I don't expect to be too long tonight, but... Kind of summarizing the chapter, I have to just hit the highlights. There's so many good, powerful verses in here that I could just park on for uh, the, an entire message, just one entire message on just one thought. Uh, I listened this week, and you know Spurgeon, he was long-winded. And uh, Spurgeon, he, he, he could preach. He could wax eloquent. Man, I was joking this morning about me not being that eloquent. And I try, and I work hard to, to be a little bit eloquent. But I listen to Spurgeon, and I feel like... Pfft, I've never said anything profound in my life. I mean, you hear him speak in just the way that he, he, he puts words together. And, and he, he preached the entire message on just what is your life but a vapor. Just that phrase, what is your life but a vapor. He just talked about that and just kept expounding and, and rolling it over and, and just, you know, just in awe at the gift that God had given him. 
So we could certainly dwell a lot longer on each one of these things, but we're going to try and move through quickly. We want you to see, first of all, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that God wants us to let go of our wants. Our wants. He says here, from whence cometh, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? He said, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. You see, beloved, he starts right off here at the very beginning and he hits us with a realization that we have some very selfish ambitions. We've got some selfish ambitions. We've got some desires that we've got to let go. Boy, we are a people that like to get our way. This question posed at the beginning, he says, where do wars come from? Where does fighting come from? It comes from our wants from our desires, from those things inside. And I'm not going to get into the geopolitical uh, realm tonight and talk about how the wars and, and what brought those on. You know, there's all kinds of debates all the way back to uh, Vietnam. Everybody, there's a secondary opinion that believes wars were motivated by uh, personal gain or by, you know, some desire for America to have this or do that. I, I'm not going to get into that tonight. But what about just... You and I, I mean, let's just talk about in our homes. Where does wars come from? War in the home. Well, I've got five kids. And I can tell you what. When they got going at it, chasing each other through the house or doing something. And, and you know, all of a sudden, mom and I realized, listen, this is getting out of control. And we'll say, hey, what are you fighting over? What was it all the time? Something like he took my toy. He ate my french fries. You know, I mean, just, it's just all, all, all these personal desires, these, these wants that they have. And, and he wants what she has. And she wants what he has. And, and life's not fair. And, and, and all, all of that. It's that want, that war starts because of it. Just expounding on it. The fighting among kids because of the wants that they are unwilling to let go. What about in the church house? Where do wars come from? In God's house. You know, uh, somebody looks and says, well, I wouldn't do it that way. I, I would do it like this. Well, I don't like the way they did that. It's, it's a personal want. It's, it's our desires we're unwilling to let go. You know, there's churches all over the country that can't buy new carpet because somebody's grandmother bought that carpet and they've passed away and now the church is stuck with this carpet. Or the, or the, or the, the chair out in the foyer. Oh, that was donated by my great aunt. We can't get rid of that. I mean, the thing is falling apart. Somebody's going to end up suing the church because it's going to break when they sit on it, but we can't move it. Can't move it. That belonged to great-grandmother. Or you know what? Here's one. Uh, they donated the piano. 74 years ago, my mom gave that piano to this church. 
Yeah, and it was 28 years old when we got it. <laughs> I think it's time to get a new one, don't you? It's funny, there's a church in Virginia, and we were on vacation, we were traveling, and uh, the pastor said they've been wanting to remodel the church for years, but the church, when it was initially built, they did it through one of these donation campaigns where everybody bought a pew, and everybody bought this, and everybody in the church bought. He said there was people's names on stuff all over the church, <laughs> all the stuff these people bought. And he says, we wanted to remodel. We had money in the bank to remodel, but we couldn't, we couldn't remodel anything. We couldn't get rid of nothing because everybody had their name on it. Nobody wanted their pew gone, you know. And uh, he says, then God sent a flood. We had four and a half feet of water in the auditorium, and it all went all at once. And he says, hallelujah. <laughs> he says, I was so excited. Just got rid of it all at once. Just everybody's stuff's gone. You know, we, did, we get our thing, you know, our want, and we want our way. And everybody else is supposed to bend and curtail to us. That's where the wars come from, the fightings. I tell you what, things could be a lot peaceful, a lot more peaceful if we would let go of some of the wants. Some of the things that we feel like we have to have our, our own way. You know, it's amazing in this text here, he says, you, eat, you are even warring in yourself. You can't even get along with yourself. <laughs> he says, you got war in your members. There's a war there, and, and the war is a battle between the old flesh and the new nature. But you've got some wants there that you don't want to let go, and because you don't let go of them, you're continuing to war even in yourself. He, he says there, he says, you know, you got... He says, even when you pray, even you ask God, you talk to God about something, he says, you know what? You're not asking God for, for, your, for your good or, or for somebody else's benefit or for God's glory. He says, even when you're asking God, when you're going to him in prayer, you're going to him because you want. You want, you want it to consume something upon your own lust. I recall a story of a very spiritual and godly young lady who was praying one day, and she said, Lord, you know my mother has prayed every single day of her life for me. And she says, God, this is not for me, but God, would you please give my mother a six-foot-tall, dark, rich, handsome son-in-law? <laughs> Could you do that for my mom? <laughs> yeah, you see, even when we ask, we're asking that we could consume it upon our own lust. Because there's so many wants. I wonder how much it would benefit us to just to let go of some of the wants. He says here, not only is there a selfish ambition, but there's a slighted assignment. He says, you have not because you ask not. It's something that we're supposed to do, but we're not doing it. We're not going to him. We need to learn to put down our want list and pray and pray for others. Stop thinking so highly of ourselves and desirous to be heard instead of listen. You know, things could be a lot more peaceful in your home if you got rid of some wants. I think, you know, maybe, sir, if you just lowered your want list a little bit for her, 
things could be a lot better. You know, ma'am, if you just lowered your want list a little bit. Boy, I, I want him to do this, and I want him to do that, and I want him to be this, and I want him to accomplish that. You know, I recall a story that Dr. Larry Brown told many years ago. I think I heard it on cassette from a message he preached probably in the early 90s. Um, and someday, if he's Lord's Terry's and he's back here, you, he may be here and he may preach this message. But uh, he preached a message and he, he told a story uh, about a lady who was having the biggest trouble in her home. Her and her husband just couldn't get along and it's so much struggle. And, and, and the pastor says, well, ultimately, what's, what's the problem? She says, preacher, you know what? He, 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 last year, he brought a load of tubifores into our bedroom. And they have been in our bedroom for, for a year. I've been climbing over tubifores, and I, I've asked them, and I've asked them, and I've, I've nagged them, and I've told them to get rid of these tubifores, and I'm sick of climbing over these tubifores with you. Just get it out of the house. Stop. Just, if you're going to do it, do it. If you need to get it out. He said, but pastor, I've been climbing over them for a year. Well, he said, well, we'll, we'll pray about it. Well, that next week was revival services, and... And revival services, God did something in this lady's heart. And she got to thinking, she says, you know what? My husband, he, he gets out of bed every morning and goes to work. My husband come, comes home every night. My husband's not out drinking and, and carousing around. He's not out uh, with other women. He, he, he brings home a check every week and provides for the family. And he, he plays with the kids out in the yard. We get to go to bed together at night, and he tells me that he loves me. He says, I, she, she said, I, I, I was letting this pile of tubifores destroy our marriage. And finally, at the end of the week, she went to her husband, and she said, Honey, I love you. And if you never move that tack of tubifores, it's okay with me. Because you're what's important to me, and I want to be with you. And I'm, I'm sorry about nagging and, and bugging you and giving you a hard time about getting those tubifores moved. Because it's not a big deal. I'll climb over those boards for the rest of my life if I get to be with you. She let go of her want. But do you know what happened that next week? That wall got built. <laughs> The two-by-fours got put up. She'd been nagging and bugging and, and chipping away at him for a year to move the stack. He wouldn't even move the stack. But she says, you know what? Forget it. That's not what's important. I'm going to let it go. Let go of the want. And then it got taken care of. We've got to learn to let go of some of our wants. We see here, secondly, we've got to learn to let go of some of our worldliness. He says in verse number four, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He describes and talks to us here right off the bat with this spiritual adultery. Beloved, as he draws for us a very clear and vivid picture of somebody that would take the gift of the love of Christ and shove it aside and go give their heart and their love to somebody else. Just like that relationship between a husband and wife. I mean, he paints it so clear, so vivid. 
But you're, you're, you're out being an adulterer. You're out being an adulteress. You're, you're taking the love of Christ and all of what He's done for you. And, and as we as the church are the bride of Christ, He says, you're out committing adultery. You can't be a friend of the world and a faithful Christian as well. It doesn't work that way. I heard a preacher say recently that you just don't hear preaching anymore on, against worldliness. He says, you don't hear preachers preaching against worldliness. He says, you know what? You'll never hear a preacher uh, uh, preaching now against gambling. He says, you don't, you don't hear preaching against going to the movie house. Some of, you, some of you older folks in here remember when people preached on that, going to the movie houses. He said, you don't hear people preaching today about watching the filth that's coming across on the television that people have in their homes. He mentioned a couple other things that I can't remember. <laughs> My mind, I'm trying to remember, but I can't remember. But you know what? I just want you to know we still, we still preach on that at Hunt Valley Baptist Church. We still preach against worldliness. It's still sin. Even if it's adapted and adopted and even promoted by the modern church today, I want you to know it's still sin. God doesn't want us as his people to be worldly, to be like the world. We don't need the world's music. We don't need the world's music. We need God's music, worshipful music. Amen? Amen. Music that draws us into the presence of God and honors and glorifies God. This world's music is it's wicked. You know, some of you young people, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that you aren't attracted to and don't listen to some of that world's music. Very popular singer today, Billie Eilish. You may like some of her songs. I see some of the smiles on some of your faces. You think, oh, it's a fun song. You know that, you know that lady is wicked? There's lyrics in some of her songs that are so vulgar I couldn't read them here in church. She has a song entitled... All the bad girls go to hell. Where she talks about God who's a woman. Who is not uh, being victorious. I, I don't know all the lyrics. but I'm saying that this is just one example. But you hear that, hear the song, sometimes you don't even think about it. What it is you're listening to. But you're, you're buying into and listening to and promoting the filth of this world. And I want you to know that God is not pleased with that. We don't need to be listening to and promoting this world's music. You know, even, even I'm going to be really old-fashioned here, even country music. And you say, country music? What's wrong with country music? Boy, I like country music. It's about loving your husband and, and you know, loving your dog and loving fishing. And that's all good stuff. Yeah. Well, just think about the life of the person that's singing that to you. Just think about the, the filth that they're promoting. What they do after their concerts. A lot of them, what they do to be able to get up and give a concert. The drugs that they're on, the alcohol that they partake of. You're buying into and promoting this world's filth. And you say, man, well, compared to rap music, uh, you know, 
country music's nice, it's calm. Well, what made rap music the standard? <laughs> you know, compared to heavy metal or compared to, well, listen, how about compared to Christ? How compared, how compared to God, worshipful music? I told you we we're going to get into some meat tonight. You guys doing okay? We, we, we don't need this world's music. We need music that draws us closer to God. It doesn't get us thinking about all the friends we have in low places. It doesn't get us thinking about the, the girlfriend we had when we were a teenager. You know, we need, we need music that edifies and lifts up. We don't need this world's dress fads. You know, I was talking to Pastor Starr two weeks ago, and, and he made a comment. I'm pretty sure it was him. He made a comment he, that he read out of a book, and uh, the, the comment he said was, worldliness is adapting to this world without thinking. Worldliness is adapting to the world without thinking. And so it's, it's adapting to, adopting, picking up whatever technology, whatever new fad, whatever the latest, you know, whether you're supposed to wear your jeans tight or loose. By the way, they're going the other way now. I'm going to be in pretty soon. <laughs> you know, the skinny jeans are on their way out. The, you'll see it, the, the movie stars and stuff. They're start, you, you know bell bottoms are coming back? I saw a clip of, of like the, I don't know, CMA or, or one of these award ceremonies for movie stars. I don't even know what they are, but there was one of the guys sitting there and he had a collar, a shirt collar that came down to here. And I said, man, the 70s are coming back. <laughs> so guys, you can get your shirts out, you know. <laughs> Don, you got, some, you got some shirts you can <laughs> start using them again. Listen, we don't need to jump on whatever fad, whatever the latest thing is. That's worldliness. You say, what's wrong with wearing a shirt with a long collar? It's only the thing that it's worldliness. It's just jumping on the bandwagon and being part of this world system without thinking, without engaging your brain. God says very clearly here, well, he says in John chapter 2, verse 15, to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're supposed to love God, love God most, and love our neighbor as ourself. In those two things, the entire law is made up. That's how we're supposed to, what we're supposed to love, not the world. You know, you wouldn't tell your mate, hey, I love you, but I'm just going to go spend a little time with him. I'm just going to go spend a little time with her. I mean, I'll be back when I have something I need. I'll be back when, when, I got, when I'm going to go to the hospital and I need you to be there. I'll be back when I need some gas in the tank or I have a bill that needs paid. But between now and then, I'm just going to go over here and give my heart. But that's what we as Christians do. When God, who died and gave himself for us, calls for our love. And we say, oh, yeah, Lord, I love you, but I'm going to give my heart to this for a little while. We've got to let go of the worldliness. If we're going to let go of the worldliness, we see it takes a submitted attitude. 
the submitted attitude. He says in verse number 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. If you're going to let go of this world, it's going to take a submitted attitude. A lot of Christians aren't experienced victory in their life is because they're trying to resist before they submit. It takes a submitted attitude, submission to God and what He wants you to do. You know, it's, it's sad, but there's even a lot of Christians. Here, here He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil. But I think there's a lot of Christians that are resisting God and submitting to the devil. And they're wondering why the Christian life is so hard. When if we would submit to God, we would have the power to resist the devil. It's got to be in the right order. But too many Christians are fighting for their wants. They're hanging on to their worldliness. They're not really ready to let go of it. They haven't come face to face with the reality of their sin. It has to boil down to what's most important to you. Your want or God's will. Your want or the worldliness you want to hang on to or loving God most of all. It's impossible, beloved, to draw nigh to God when we are His enemy. He said to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. We can't draw nigh to God and be a friend of the world. It doesn't work. Because you're trying to draw nigh to somebody that you have something between you. You got to let go of the worldliness. Let go of it and draw nigh to God. And it's only going to happen, beloved, when there's a sorrowful affliction. He says in verse number 9, He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Friends, you're never going to get right with God. You're never going to purify your heart. You're never going to cleanse your hands until you're broken over your sin. I mean, until you're really broken over what your sin is doing to your heavenly Father. I think in the example given here with regards to adulteresses and adulterers, many times the individual is not broken until they're found out. And then they're hit with the realization of they're going to lose everything they have. And all of a sudden they're broken. All of a sudden they realize the great travesty and what they've done. I don't know, does God have to expose us? Or could we get broken over our sin on our own? Could we come back to God on our own? He says, be afflicted and mourn. He says, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. We know, beloved, that God is not against joy. God's not against laughing. Laughter doeth good like a medicine. We know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know God wants you to be joy, but what God is saying, when you're living in sin, it's not a time to be laughing. God doesn't laugh at your sin. You know, that's something about worldliness. 
you, you see it and, and even like that song I mentioned, Billy Irish talking about that, talking about God. So many of them, a lot of their jokes, a lot of their humor, a lot of what they do is, all, is mocking God. It's laughing about God. It's making fun of Christianity and Christians. God says when you're living in sin, it's not a time to be laughing. There must be a sorrowful affliction. Too many Christians are laughing and having a good time while they're breaking the heart of God. When was the last time we were really broken over our sin? Really broken. We see there's a supernatural advancement in verse number 10. He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. It's something that he does. It's not something that we have to pursue or try and do or accomplish of our own. It's a supernatural advancement. When we come before God humbly and get right with God and submit to him, submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You humble yourself, and then God begins to lift you up. It's amazing what God will do if we're willing to let go of our worldliness. You've got to learn to let go. Let go of some wants. Let go of some worldliness. And lastly, tonight, I want you to know we want you to let go of your individual will, your own will. He says in verses 13 through 17, look down at verse 13. He says, go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain." Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. We see he calls us here to a special attention. Right in the beginning there, he says, go to now. Those, verse, those words are, are a call to attention. It's a, it's a, he's saying, come on now. Come on. Pay attention. He's saying, come on now. Listen, listen up. And he's saying, go to now. He's like, don't you realize? Doesn't it, doesn't it register to you that life is short? Why would you make plans and, and think that you're going to do something next year when you don't even know if you have tomorrow? You have no idea. He says, you, you've got your will and you've got your plan and you're going to set this all out. And listen, God, God is not saying don't, don't plan. What he's saying here is stop making plans outside of God. He's saying, if the Lord will, I will do such and such. If the Lord wills, here's here's my plan, provided God would have it be that way. So planning is wise, but we need to plan in the will of God, not in ourselves, not on, on our own. Life is a vapor, something that's short, so brief. It's here, then it's gone. And so it takes a surrendered ambition to let go of our will. We've got to surrender it. He says, verse 15, he says, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. He says, hey, if the Lord will, we'll do this. If it's God's will. It's living life in the acknowledgement that really God's in control. 
God's in control, not us. And we know that. And you know when we live that way, it honors God. For us to live and to make and set plans, like, you know the rich man, he says, hey, I've got more than I, than I can handle, I've got more than I can take, but you know what, I'm just going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build new ones. Living outside of an, an acknowledgement of God. And we know the world does that every day. That's the way the world lives because they don't know God. But Christians shouldn't be living that way. Christians should be living in a full acknowledgement of God and a surrendered ambition yielding their desire to Him. Whatever your will is, God, I'm going I'm to submit to it. I'm going to surrender to it. We see lastly here, the very last verse, a sinful action. It's actually the lack of action that is sin. He says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. When you know something is right to do and you don't do it, it's sin. You see, there's a lot of times in our life we look at things that we're doing and we say, man, I need to stop that. I shouldn't do this. And we talked a little bit about worldliness and letting that go tonight. But the other side of that is God saying, hey, there might be some things that you're supposed to be doing. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Can I ask you, is it good to give a gospel track out? Yeah. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Is it good to be in church? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Is it good to read the Bible? Yes. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Is it good to pray for one another? Yes. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There's things that we know are God's will for us. And beloved, when we don't do it, it's sin. And I know that's pretty harsh. But you tell me, is that what God's word says? It's what it says. We've got to do what God wants. Learning how to let go. We got some wants we got to let go. Be a lot less fighting, a lot less wars if we learn to let go. We got to learn to let go of the worldliness because it's breaking the heart of God, our Savior. He's looking for holy, surrendered, separated believers whose heart, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Amen, Bill? We've got to let go of some worldliness. And ultimately, we've got to let go of our own personal will and yield it to God's. And Lord, whatever your will is for the future. There's a whole lot more preaching that can be done on these verses. But I don't know what you're hanging on to tonight that maybe God's saying you need to let it go.